Hello, I'm Olena Palko, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemoration, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Basis Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On this episode, Michael Frankel at Masaryk Institute at the Czech Academy of Sciences speaks to Matthew Frank at, uni at University of Leeds about the history of international population transfers, migration and refugees in Eastern Europe. Thank you, Olena, for this uh, introduction. And it's a real pleasure uh, to be here with you, albeit only virtually um, today, um, especially because um, uh, the topic for today connects very nicely to my uh, research project called The Unlikely Refuge uh, with a question mark. Um, it's an European Research Council funded project which tries to look anew at the history of refugees in Central and Eastern Europe um, and tries to examine this space um, as a place where uh, uh, which uh, refugees not only left, but they were, where they also searched for protection. And we could hardly have a better guest for speaking about refugees, migration and population transfer than Matthew Frank, the University of Leeds. Um, and uh, I think much of our discussion today will be centered around his uh, recent book, Making Minorities uh, History. However, before we do that, uh, Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Um, and it would be great if you could start by telling us a little bit about how you got towards researching the rather darker stories of uh, European history of the 20th century. Thanks, Michal, and, and, and thanks, Elena, as well. And I'm, I'm delighted to take part in uh, this podcast, and, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, so to say a little bit about how I came to, to, to focus on, on, on 20th century uh, population transfers in Europe. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from London, uh, which, which is where I did my, um, my undergraduate studies uh, at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, CIS, uh, in the early 1990s, um, which is uh, also where and when I suppose, uh, with hindsight, I developed an interest uh, in this topic. Um, that was a time, of course, of, of profound change uh, in what we still unquestioningly and unreflectively called Eastern Europe, um, and the, the darker side of which, of course, were the tragic developments in what was Yugoslavia uh, at that time. Uh, and I was fortunate enough at CIS uh, to have the opportunity to study these uh, contemporary international developments uh, in the region alongside its history. Uh, and then after uh, spells living and working in Russia and, and Germany, I returned to the UK for postgraduate studies at St. Anthony's College, uh, Oxford, to work on the expulsion of the Germans uh, from East Central Europe at the end of the Second World War. Uh, a subject that um, that uh, had received and was once again receiving a lot of attention in Germany at the time in the 90s, uh, but much less so in the in the Anglosphere, uh, though this was already beginning to change. Uh, and my focus in my postgraduate studies was on the international dimensions of this topic, uh, drawing primarily on, on a wide range of, 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 of British um, uh, sources. 
Um, and in that project, my, my aim was to show uh, why the British came to regard the forcible removal of, of, of German minorities as a necessity, and also to explain how and why the British public and, and officials uh, responded as they did uh, once uh, mass expulsion became a reality in 1945. And at the heart of the study, uh, and its explanation of, of, of British actions was this concept of population transfer. Yeah? This idea that uh, a minority could and should uh, in the interests of international peace uh, and on the, the basis of an interstate treaty could be removed from its country of residence and, and resettled uh, in its ethnic homeland. Uh, and what I wanted to show it, and what I did show in that, in that project was that while most British observers accepted the principle of population transfer, most were consistently uneasy with the results of putting this into practice. And uh, uh, Expelling the Germans, which was the book that resulted from this research, was basically about this clash of principle and practice over, over population transfer. So in a sense, it was a natural progression then, um, after that, to move on to uh, the study of, of a concept of population transfer in its wider European yeah, dimensions, um, as a kind of multi-archival uh, international history in order to connect the different contexts and, and episodes in, in which it was invoked um, and applied over the course of the 20th century and uh, making minorities history which is my second book was the result of these in, endeavors um, over a decade in different archives in, in, in Europe and, 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 and on the other side of the Atlantic. And there is a um, very broad wonderful research looking just at the bibliography and the list of archives that you have um, you have looked there for uh, for your book, uh, and Matthew. By the way, uh, I I need to think about how my research also originates in the spirit of the 1990s, um, mm. and I've done a lot of reflection on that uh, on that lately. But let's uh, move um, onwards to uh, towards the book, um, and it's it's arguments. Um, and I was wondering if you could um, say a little bit more detail about. Uh, what are these population transfers? What is what are the concepts uh, behind them, um, and how do they actually are differentiated from other cases of mass displacement? Yeah, thanks. Um, I think that's an important, important question, um, and something that, that that needs to be needs to be outlined. Okay, so yes, the distinction is crucial, um, uh, and it's one that proponents of population transfer were at pains to point out, yeah. um, especially in the face of kind of criticisms of this measure, uh, uh, that it was somehow barbaric or, or, or impractical. Um, and you know, for those who, 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 who invoked population transfer as a solution to minorities' problems, it did come to denote a separate, uh, if not always clearly defined process, uh, one which was, distinguishable from kind of other coerced movements of population uh, in two ways uh, because of its intended outcomes yeah so the idea of that it was, would reduce international tension uh, that it could avoid massacre of groups if otherwise left in situ uh, the consolidation of the nation state which is something i think you also wanted to talk about as well later on uh, but not just outcomes but also methods that was key as well uh, the way in which it was done through an interstate treaty, i.e. under, you know, with a kind of legal, legal framework uh, involving international cooperation between one, uh, two or more states, uh, with organizational frameworks for the resettlement of populations, uh, so-called mixed commissions, 
yeah, that would oversee uh, the movement of populations. And crucially, at least in theory, the indemnification of property, i.e. compensation for property lost uh, um, of those who were, who were transferred. And, you know, to a great extent, um, the terminology that's applied uh, reflected this conceptual distinctiveness. You know, ideas of transfer, transference, transplant, transplantation, all of them kind of seemingly value-free words which imply a thought process based upon a notion of this being a rational transaction, free of conflict, clean and bloodless. Now, of course, I probably don't need to point out that it looked a lot different in practice, but that is very much the concept of it that makes this idea, which, you know, under any other circumstances would seem to be deeply illiberal, yeah, uh, to be uh, permissible yeah, once it's thought of in those, in those terms. Um. Reading your book, there is this um, process of what I found very fascinating is this process of normalization of the concept of population transfer, something which was inconceivable, mm -hmm. then it was considered possible, uh, and finally it was it was normalized. I was wondering, could you perhaps um, um, add some? But I also felt that um, there's, there continued to be a certain unease that those who were involved. Um, understood that this is a risky, very complex endeavor. And I was wondering if you if you would like to add some examples of how the actors in these population transfers themselves came to terms with uh, with the population transfer. Do you mean those who were involved in, uh, to put it crudely, selling the idea and and for, and, and propagating? For instance, I, be it diplomats or be it, for instance, mm -hmm. humanitarians who were yeah. who were involved. I understand this was not always an, an easy process. Uh, okay, there's a question here of where it's done. Yeah, so question of where it's permissible and certain parts of Europe that it's permissible and other parts that it isn't. Um, when it's done um, and who it's done by. Um, I think initially at least, uh, within the context of um, uh, the Near East, yeah, um, or the Aegean literal in late 22, 23, uh, which results in you know, the Greek refugee crisis of late 22, following the collapse of um, uh, Greek uh, expansionist uh, uh, advances into um, Anatolia, uh, the collapse of the Greek military and the, the flight of large numbers of Greeks. Uh, the thinking there was that population exchange or the compulsory exchange of population, though really it was primarily a, a forced transfer of, 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 of Muslims from Greek to make way for Orthodox Christians um, from Anatolia. It was seen as the best of, of a host of bad options that were there. Yeah. And it was better than the alternative, which was extermination. So this is a point that I was, that's worth making here that often, and this is something that when we talked about uh, areas that we might discuss today, this relationship between uh, minority protection yeah, and uh, population transfer. To some extent, you can see population transfer as a form of a way of protecting minorities, particularly when, if they are left where they are, they're facing or the prospect of facing extermination yeah, or deportation. Uh, to an uncertain fate. Uh, so in that sense, uh, population 
transfer in that context can be framed as a humanitarian protective measure because by removing them you are taking them to a place of safety yeah and avoiding um a, a worse fate um and in that sense it can be therefore uh, presented as a as a, as a positive measure measure at least uh, in, uh, in 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 contrast to the alternatives and in this sense i think it also feeds in the current and recent discussions about humanitarianism and its entanglements with um with global politics um with um, um colonialism and post-colonial in the post-colonial um, uh, situations uh, and just complicating the history of humanitarians who are no longer just heroes who provide aid to those who, who are who are needed. And I was fascinated by your uh, uh, description of how uh, uh, Nansen, who, was, who's, who figures prominently in every history of humanitarianism and every history of refugee protection, um, how he was involved um, in, the, in the negotiations of the first population transfers, but also how he was brought in a very difficult, difficult position. So perhaps um, it would be interesting to connect this to uh, current studies about humanitarianism. Yeah, it would. And um, I don't know. I mean, if you have, I'm, I don't know whether we have a figure, <laughs> you know, as uh, as as prominent, given how crowded the humanitarian landscape is today compared to the early 1920s, um, and how, how how developed that's become on so many different levels. Uh, whether there is a figure. Uh, who would have had uh, that prominence at the time, or at least, I mean, the danger with someone like Nansen is, is the extent to which uh, that is a result of the kind of narratives that spun up around him afterwards, uh, you know, in terms of his prominence and his, how instrumental he was. And he's a very important part of the story that is then told about what's done in the Near East. And then the story that the League tells yeah, of its early exploits and its successes. But at the time, you know, Nansen's contribution to outcomes in the Near East in late 22, 23 were rather minimal, actually. Um, he was useful uh, um, on a number of different levels for starting to maybe getting things moving uh, in terms of discussions on a specific issue and concentrating minds on it. But this idea that he, as a lot of the hagiography around his, you know, humanitarian refugee work, single-handedly, like some Norwegian Hercules, you know, held up the burden of, you know, the suffering of the of the Greek uh, uh, refugees and, and the other dispossessed of Europe, is a stuff of, you know, interwar hero fantasies and doesn't necessarily reflect the realities of the type of political work that was being done there. But what it does show, and I think absolutely, absolutely, Michal, you, you know, you've put your finger on it there. And it'd be interesting actually you, in, in, in your own work, and particularly contemporaneously as well, looking at this intersection of politics and humanitarianism, just a reminder that these are not binaries. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, politics and humanitarian coexist. They are, the, they are of the same, you know, um, and we need to see them um, as being uh, 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 interconnected and entangled. And, and, and Nansen's a very early, early example of that. And I would say that um, what uh, connects them is also some uh, the, the need to categorize and, uh, and organize populations, uh, something that has been very critically explored for uh, refugee protection, say, in Africa, be it UNHCR, be it uh, NGOs. Um, 
and that is that is very similar to uh, what was the very basis of the population transfers. You needed to get grasp. You need to see the population in the sense of seeing like state. Mm -hmm. um, uh, develop your categories and develop the methods uh, to sort people into groups. Um, and this is a very similar kind of expertise that is being um, and very similar type of experts, I would guess, uh, uh, who are required for this kind of activity. Um, yes, I, do you want me to come? But I, I, I entirely agree with you. And I think what's 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 in, instructive about um, the the case, the Greek or Turkish case, and the, and the Lausanne conventions and the categories under which those populations are identified and then ultimately moved is those of large, largely very crude uh, forms of categorization collectively um, that make very little. Uh, though there are some exceptions, of course, uh, you know, for some groups um, under the Lausanne Convention of January 23, the, the, the Greeks of Constantinople, uh, Turks of, of, of Eastern Thrace and some of the islands as well. But generally, these kind of very crude, large categories of, you know, Orthodox Greeks yeah, and, 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 and Muslims of Greece, which doesn't take into, you know, any, any distinction between, uh, you know, class, uh, uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, uh, linguistic uh, uh, you know, uh, language uh, um, or, or even a geographic uh, a location as well. Um, so yes, dealing with these um, these, these 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 groups uh, as kind of large, identifiable, uh, and ultimately therefore movable <laughs> uh, categories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, speaking of, of the uh, uh, Greek-Turkish population transfer. As an example, and you've described very uh, uh, in a very clear way how it was used to normalize the other cases uh, later on, um, and also because it was seen as a success. Um, I was wondering for people like Edward Benesh, for instance, the Czechoslovak president um, who uh, uh, brought forward the transfer of Germans uh, from Czechoslovakia, um, how much they actually knew, really knew, about the population transfer between uh, Greece and Turkey. I'm sure they used it, but did they really know in detail what happened at, uh, in the 1920s? Um, when you mean what happened, do you mean in terms of the experiences of those who were resettled and uh, the difficulties involved in that? Or were they aware of the kind of this, the history in as much as there was one at that point that had uh, emerged around this, that had been written about this. Because the latter they were very aware of. And, you know, uh, the, the Czech exile uh, uh, government um, studied in, 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 in great detail um, as, as, as much as they could. Uh, and to some extent with the assistance of the British, actually. Um, Earlier, uh, earlier precedents, uh, partly in order to part to assuage some of the fears yeah, uh, that there might have been uh, uh, among their hosts about this quite radical measure. Um, and there, they looked into as much detail as they possibly could, but they were more primarily interested in the political benefits that that brought. All right. And in that sense, the big success story 
uh, emerging from um, the Greco-Turkish exchange was, of course, Greco-Turkish reconciliation by, you know, 1930, you know. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, uh, there was always the caveat in any of these kind of success uh, story narratives around the Greco-Turkish exchange that, yes, as a consequences of this, it was a tough measure and, you know, it was very difficult for the people involved, et cetera, et cetera. But look at Greece and Turkey, yeah? A hundred years of rivalry, yeah? You know, uh, you know uh, 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 successive wars, yeah? regional and you could argue continental instability as a consequence, and now they are allies, yeah? And making a direct connection between the two of those removing yeah, their respective minority populations and the temptation to intervene in each other's affairs and therefore a pretext uh, for, for expansion and war. Um, and that was held up as that example. So I think there's a very much a focus on the political outcomes and that this, therefore uh, this could somehow be replicated yeah, um, in Central Europe perhaps. Because initially this was not a Central European solution. <laughs> this is a Southeast. This is for the other Europe. Um, it's, but but to kind of bring this idea into Central Europe. But of course it wasn't Benesh that brought this idea into Central Europe. It was Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, with the Heimensreich uh, uh, transfers uh, and agreements that uh, Berlin signed with all of its allies between 1939 and 1941. And in that, uh, you know. Uh, the, the Greco-Turkish exchange, not so much by the Germans, but the Italians, when they signed the uh, agreement over South Tyrol, that was invoked, saying, look, you know, what's wrong with this? The, 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 the so-called liberal democracies have engaged in this type of, you know, uh, interstate agreement to kind of resolve minority problems in this part of Europe, and we're just doing it here as well. Uh, so in that sense, you know, uh, it's, it's not just Edvard Benesch, I mean, very much the story in the past was very much this idea of kind of, yeah, you know, nasty Benesh <laughs> introducing this idea into Central Europe. Not at all, um, actually, very much so. There's a direct continuity um, between what happened in Southeastern uh, Europe in 1922 and 23 and what then happens in Central Europe under Nazi and Soviet as well, of course, because they signed a, a number of different um, agreements uh, uh, with, the, um, with, with Berlin in, in 1939, 1940, in order to kind of shore up uh, their non-aggression pact and alliance. Um, again, invoking this idea of, you know, population transfers make good neighbors. Yeah. Look at Greek and Turkey. Look at the Soviet Union and, and, and Nazi Germany. Yeah. Who were, we conveniently forget, allies, <laughs> essentially between 1939 and 1941. Um, so that idea was already there in many ways, uh, which, of course, made it for Benesh very easy or much easier to convince uh, his, uh, his, his, his British hosts. Um, and, and the other uh, powers to apply this measure more extensively uh, post-Second World War uh, to the, uh, the, 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 the bad minority par excellence, the Sudeten Germans. Yeah? If any minority needed to be you know, uh, eliminated, it was Sudeten Germans. It, it is of course interesting that in contrast to current discussions um, in the public space, but also um, the scholarly discussions in which migration is typically a threat to the nation state. It problematizes the borders, it's, a, it's an issue for welfare, uh, it's a nightmare for citizenship, um, it features big in political conflicts, it just questions the very stability of the nation state in the imagination that we have. And, and the population transfers that you describe uh, in that moving people around 
um, has a completely different function. It is imagined as something which will stabilize the nation states. And perhaps um, as much as we perhaps disagree with transferring people, it might have stabilized these, um, uh, these nation states that were in some kind of process of construction. And I was, as you spoke, I was also thinking that um, one set of um, events that could be added to this lineage uh, are the option treaties, mm. um, in, especially in post-Habsburg, mm -hmm. um, but also, also post-Tsarist uh, uh, Russian uh, space, um, in which were large groups of population were voluntarily um, uh, were allowed to resettle to to their nation state across the border mm -hmm. um, and even move some property. These were also very elaborate international um, international arrangements. Um, so, but I, I was wondering, you know, this uh, this notion that migration actually stabilizes um, stabilizes the nation state is, I think, a very interesting um, uh, result of your research. Yeah, I mean, uh, does it stabilize it? I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of research has been done on Greece and the, and, and the, and the long-term uh, impact um, of uh, the uh, resettlement of large, especially urban uh, populations and the way in which that contributed to uh, Greece's long-term economic and political instability. Um, I don't know. Um, I think the way I think what we should do when we're studying population transfer is to, I suppose, understand the era on its own terms. Uh, I think from the perspective of the mid-century, given what was going on, what had been experimented with, what the alternatives were, yeah, and the kind of states that had emerged from the collapse of four dynastic empires in East Central Europe, yeah, the notion of homogeneity. Uh, based on whether it be on you know language, religion, ethnicity, or a combination of all of those, seemed an attractive proposition, yeah, because of this sense that the states or those states that had emerged from the post-World War settlement with uh, conflicting nationalities within it, but of which nationalities then became minorities, were fundamentally unstable, and that they had been. Um, uh, the pretext for outside intervention by larger powers and were therefore uh, a source of not just uh, regional but of, of, of continental and, and ultimately global insecurity uh, and this idea uh, and particularly by the late 1930s when we, we have this persistent notion and you can't escape it anywhere of the minorities problem the problematizing of minorities and this direct connection between minorities and war, yeah, and that is very much the case. And you see that road to war, you know, the pretext for uh, German intervention uh, in 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 both um, in both in both Czechoslovakia um, and, and then in Poland was that of German minorities. Yeah, so there's a connection between the two of those, and to make those states viable, uh, if they were to be recreated, uh, then they had to be recreated in a way that avoided a lot of the problems of the interwar period, and you know. There was minority protection there. That was one way. In the optimistic, you know, uh, days of 1919, you know, they didn't, uh, you know, the, the peacemakers uh, in, in Paris didn't opt for population transfer. They didn't. Um, they opted for, you know, largely mi minorities treaties uh, as a condition uh, for those new and expanded states uh, being kind of recognised. Uh, and in a sense, that was an optimistic 
um, interpretation of the way in which minorities or these different groups could somehow be reconciled long term, yeah, uh, as non-state nationalities in these nation states. But that quickly unraveled. Yeah, and that quickly unraveled. Um, and minority protection, you know, to put it in a kind of slightly kind of simplistic way, it didn't protect those minorities that needed to be protected, i.e. the Jews, and actually the Germans in, 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 in South Tyrol, which didn't actually come under the minority treaties, who were terribly treated in a way that Sudeten Germans, you know, you know, you know weren't uh, comparatively. Um, and it, 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 it largely encouraged those minorities that didn't need protection, yeah, Germans, for example, because they had a big state next to them, to um, undermine uh, 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 and, 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 and to cause you know, uh, long-standing political problems for those states. Um, and increasingly, I think, minority protection seems to be seen as actually um, a threat to the state. I mean, it always was from the beginning as well. There was this lack of, there was a sense of injustice around it, that it was only being applied to certain states, yeah? Uh, you know, those that were kind of uncivilized. And again, this goes back to this idea of Eastern Europe, isn't it? We can actually define Eastern Europe by those states that are uh, subject to minorities treaties because they can't be trusted to look after their own minorities without international um, um, oversight. Uh, but more importantly, yeah, these 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 minorities uh, these minorities treaties were seen to be yeah not just an imposition on the sovereignty of the state, uh, but also actually a um, a, a, a threat to them uh, because it offered a pretext for more powerful states to intervene. So I think going back to that, you know, when we get to the late 1930s, early 1940s, there's really no turning back. You know, they're not going to go back to that. But what are you going to do with these minorities? They're going to still be there. Those that haven't been, you know, uh, exterminated um, or, you know, or, 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 you know, what are you going to do with them? Um, and um, population transfer in many ways becomes a way of, um, at least for certain minority groups, those unreconcilable ones, i.e. Germans, Hungarians, yeah, <laughs> uh, to get rid of them. And I think that's that, that's very important to, for us to understand that there's a narrowing of those kind of alternatives at that particular point in time. Um, if I could say one thing as well about homogenous, you know, this idea of so it's not just about the states themselves that are that, that lose them. It's also those, I think, increasing the positive argument for it was those that were receiving them. Yeah, this idea that you know, in taking in um, these national elements that exist outside of the of 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 the nation state borders they could hum somehow were a positive contribution politically because of course it strengthened the national claim yeah to that land yeah particularly if they were settled in areas which were contested yeah i'm thinking here uh, areas of northern greece for example yeah uh you know in, in the early 1920s um but also as well um this idea that they could also be an economic asset, yeah, not just in terms of the skills that they bring, and then I go back to go back to Greece again. This idea, but also as a spur to development, um, and uh, that's certainly in terms of the success narratives uh, around Greece and Turkey in the twenties and thirties. That's really important. I'm thinking Turkey's case as well. The, rece the reception of uh, the Muslims from Greece, which were just one of many groups that, um, that the Ottoman Empire and Turkey had taken in from Southeastern Europe and Southern Russia over the previous you know, century, that they were helping to contribute um, to the Turkish nation state, which is, of course, the modern successor to Ottoman Turkey, its modernization, secularization. Um, you could see that as well in retrospect, in terms of narratives around German, um, the, the, the absorption of German expertise, 
uh, in the 1950s, the way that contributed to the uh, economic wonder. Though it looks very much like that in retrospect, but certainly that is a narrative that has, 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 has built up around this, that they have contributed to consolidation politically and economically um, of, of the nation, nation state, which, you know, we see that elsewhere as well. We see it with, even with Czechoslovakia, yeah, 1940s, they're desperate to bring in all different elements of Czechs and Slovaks back, even the Czechs of Vienna, you know, or even recalling Czechs and Slovaks from America, come back, you know, ultimately, you know, and kind of consolidate and rebuild uh, the nation state and make it and a nation state of Czechs, you know, and Slovaks. Uh, and we also see that with the right of return to some extent outside of Europe as, as well in Israel uh, too. That's a really important part of, of, of that kind of in-gathering of elements. And um, thank you for the, for, for the very complex answer. And uh, Margaret also just travels through some of the border areas. Uh, I have on mind the uh, border areas of the uh, current Czech Republic to judge whether um, whether this project of expelling a large number of people and bringing in the others uh, was so successful in the in terms of long term economic uh, economic development, um, but of course it was part of the post war homogenization. Mm. Uh, that is um, that is very clear. And speaking about um, uh, about minority protection uh, and its broader connections, um, I was wondering how how this is if this can be linked to the other form of protection that started to develop in interwar Europe, and that is refugee protection, it, um, which of course includes, uh, again, the figure of Nansen, but also um, a lot of others. And I'm asking also with respect to Eastern Europe, uh, because uh, uh, one thing that strikes me, one thing that actually inspired my, uh, my project is this widespread perception that uh, Eastern, Eastern and Central Europe uh, is place you escape from. It's a region visited by political crises and uh, authoritarian or totalitarian regimes and economic underdevelopment and brain drain and all of that. Um, and cases when refugees come into this region are typically described as exceptions um, rather than something that should be examined over the long term. So I was wondering if there's a way to connect these stories, to bring these stories together in some form, refugee protection, minority protection, uh, population transfer. Okay, uh, that's another big, big, big question. Uh, I'll try and keep my answer a little bit shorter than the other one, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, let's I'll start with a, this, not the simpler one, but maybe the one that you can also kind of help or maybe explain as well your thoughts on this too. So this idea that, you know, Eastern Europe, is primarily perceived as a space to leave. I'm not entirely convinced of that, actually. Um, I mean, most of the the displace. I mean, it depends on how we. Yeah, okay, we're going to get the question of what what are we going to what do we mean by Eastern European? Yeah, and I suppose I'm taking that idea of the lands between. Maybe I don't know. I know, but. Um, <laughs> In many senses, I would say that actually most of these these displacements, and we should also add, they're not just displacements, they are also replacements. Yeah, as well. You know, if we're thinking of, for example, say um, the, yeah, we've got the case of the Greek-Turkish exchange, for example, people aren't going very far if you still, you know, uh, you know, just it's crossing the Aegean to kind of use the term of René Hirsch's book. 
but in the case of post-war Germany, um, you know, the, 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 the movement of, of Poles uh, from, you know, Western Belarusia, Western Ukraine to, you know, West, literally, you know, to, 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 to what was, you know, Eastern Germany and what becomes Western Poland. I and mean, that's still within Eastern Europe. Equally, also the population exchanges uh, in the uh, Soviet, Polish, uh, Slovak borderlands, uh, you know, between 44 uh, and 47 as well. Uh, and those are displacements, but they're also replacements <laughs> as well. Now, of course, the replacement, your example there of the Sudeten Germans in the board, very much in that military strip, there was no replacement. That was no man's land <laughs> as a consequence of the Cold War. But in most cases, there was replacement, you know, and you see that in the kind of, you know, the, the revival of life and 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 and, and, and the transformation of, of, of Breslau into Rotsov, yeah, you know, for example. Um, um, so I, I'm not sure about whether it is necessarily a place to leave. It's a place where people are on the move. It's not necessarily a place to leave. Um, in terms of the, in terms of the, in terms of the connection between minority protection, refugee protection, and population transfer. One way of looking at minority protection, um, at least in the way that it emerged in 1919-20, when we talk of the minorities treaties, yeah, these kind of clauses inserted into the. Um, into the into the peace settlements, um, yeah, you know, when the, the, the frontiers of Poland or whatever, Czechoslovakia and, and other new, new and expanded states, and Romania as well, uh, were were decided upon. One way of looking at them is actually as a safeguard against creating refugees, to prevent minorities becoming refugees. Yeah, are you becoming stateless? And of course, you know, when we delve deeper into why. Uh, in 1919 in Paris, minority treaties were uh, agreed upon. It's the um, agency, it's the, it's the activities of Jewish organizations, both from Eastern Europe and outside, uh, who are pressing for some degree of international intervention because of the pogroms <laughs> that are going on yeah, at this particular point in time. You know? um, and the fear that, you know, if uh, these states who have, you know, a long history of, you know, particularly in uh, Romania, uh, you know, of, of successive um, uh, state-inspired pogroms. And of course, actually, it's in response to Romania in 1848 that we, uh, you know, we saw the, uh, the first uh, example of international minority protection. Um, that actually, that, that, that emerges from that. This is idea that actually minority protection is there to prevent them being displaced and becoming what we would call you know refugees or, or, or stateless uh, as understood in the in, in the interwar period so there's a connection there I, I, I suppose within that there's another connection between transfer and refugees which i think i've probably already alluded to in terms of um the the, the greco-turkish example when i mentioned why I, I i suggested that we look at um population transfer as a form of minority protection, i.e. removing them to a, a safe place. Um, and in a sense, population transfer, if it does involve the resettlement of a group of people in a ethnic or national homeland, is in a sense a solution to refugee problem because they're no longer refugees. They belong as citizens in that state. They are no longer between states. They're no longer stuck in that crack between states. Yeah. They have, yeah, they fit into that matrix yeah, of, you know, territory, nation, state, etc. So in that sense, population transfer can be seen as a refugee solution 
because it turns refugees into citizens. That doesn't, doesn't change the fact that they are displaced, but they don't become uh, these groups that um, uh, uh, exist yeah, between states um, and then become, uh, as we saw in the interwar period, with those groups that became an international responsibility, uh, the, the, the responsibility of, of, of a nascent international refugee regime. They become the responsibility of the nation state, which takes them in as co-nationals and, and co-brethren. Uh, in this way, of course, it's it's seen as a prevention of statelessness. Um, Absolutely, yeah. It's seen as a, one of the core uh, problems that develops in um, in the uh, in the interwar period. And what I had on mind, from my perspective, is not the lack of refugee history uh, or some whatever kind of migration, forced migration, mass migration um, uh, movements in eastern uh, east central Europe, but rather the way we think about this. And what strikes me, I think there's there's two things. Um, one thing that that was my point of departure. That was the it was the research about the Holocaust era refugee policies. Um, and you had on the one hand uh, so much very critical research about Western liberal democracies, um, uh, for which obviously, uh, at least from the perspective of this very large group of historians, excellent historians uh, in many ways. It was uh, essential to ask the question, why did democracies, an ethical question, why did democracies not act? Why did they not open their borders uh, for a group that we today clearly see um, as refugees? And I was struck that, um, uh, that there's very few, very, there are very few cases of such research for uh, countries like Czech even Czechoslovakia um, or uh, Poland, Hungary. Um, uh, and it, that was, I think, the original point of departure for me um, uh, to try to look at what you also hinted, how we imagine Eastern Europe, Eastern European uh, quotation, quotation marks. The other question uh, is that, of course, if you look closer, you have all kinds of research. For instance, take, as an example, take Czechoslovakia. You have all kinds of research about refugees. Um, Anti-Nazi refugees, uh, Russian and Ukrainian anti communist refugees of the 1920s, um, et cetera, et cetera. But in most cases, these are group histories. What is being examined is less uh, how we uh, accommodate, categorize um, these refugees, how we provide assistance, what kind of status they receive. But there's much more focus on some kind of exile studies. You know, they're being seen um, as uh, uh, they're being understood within their group history, be it a politically or nationally defined group history. And then, of course, um, refugee history in the region is some kind of waiting room for these, these groups to return. Um, and this is, this is in contrast to the population movements uh, who belong to the nation, um, these kind of mass movements that, uh, that, you, were, that you were describing. And my, my sense is that, that because these large-scale transfers um, or even ethnic cleansings became so defining for how we see the history of this region. Um, and again, we can come back to the 1990s and the Yugoslav wars, which influenced, I think, a whole generation uh, yeah. of historians. Yeah. Um, um, and that, that I think has an impact on how we, how we write the history and what we, uh, what we, what we prioritize. 
but perhaps we should move um, a little bit forward <laughs> with our conversation. And I was, uh, I was wondering, uh, I mean, in your book, you provide a very critical analysis of how governments saw uh, population movements, what mm -hmm. terminology they used, and, and not only governments, also international organization. And you, I think already in the introduction, you, you mentioned the exclusion of voices and perspectives mm. of those who are who were effect, uh, affected, um, and that, in, as a matter of fact, this was a, a necessary element of of, of such policies. Mm. So I was wondering now if 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 it would be possible to reverse the perspective, you know, for the sake of an argument as a sort of experiment, how would your book look like if you? Uh, try to write it from below, and uh, is there a way, in terms of sources, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is there a way to bring in the views and the agency of, of these refugees into the picture? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a good question, um, and not an easy one um, to answer. <laughs> I'm not asking uh, easy questions. <laughs> uh, and maybe I'm not the best person, uh, uh, or the best place person to answer it. Um, yeah, it would certainly be a very different book um, and it would tell a very different story um, given the shift away from high politics, yeah, and the internet to that into kind of internet interconnected activities yeah, of states uh, which shaped, you know, and defined population transfer uh, as a policy. Uh, could it be done from below um, as a pan-European history? Um, and with any degree of coherency? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think it can be, um, and it has been successfully done um, on a case by case basis. Um, I've I have in mind, I'd have in mind for that, I suppose, Bruce Clark's work, Twice a Stranger on, 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 on Greece and Turkey, uh, which I think you know, neatly weaves together. Uh, the high politics uh, and experience of, of displacement yeah, and the kind of legacies of that. Um, so I think that's, that, that, that was a very successful way of doing it um, and kind of understanding of the ways in which um, these decisions of state impact upon um, individuals' lives um, and, uh, and the trajectories that they take. Um, um, I might dodge the question by answering it differently, um, you know, and just to maybe to latch onto this idea of bringing in the views and agency of refugees. Um, I mean, to some extent, the the views um, and agency of 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 of, of the displaced, yeah, um, or at least a, a select elite group of them, they were actually reflected in in, in discussions around population in the, in, in the mid-century. And, and, and I cover some of them in the book. And I'm referring here, I suppose, primarily to the input the Jewish emigres uh, from Eastern Europe, mainly US-based, um, had on, on, on researching writing and in some cases proselytizing for mass population transfer during World War II. Uh, and this was often, um, th though not exclusively uh, with an eye um, uh, on the prospects of the establishment of a Jewish uh, state post-war. Um, there's also the case of uh, the so-called uh, Democrat, Democratic Sudeten German exiles, you know, around, um, clustered around Wenzel Yaksch, yeah, who featured very prominently, uh, 
probably yeah. I say in my opinion a little bit too prominently in both German and Czech accounts um, of you know the steps taken towards expelling ethnic Germans from Czechoslovakia and you know their efforts these 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 Sudeten German exiles most of whom were were, were in London uh, their attempts which were largely unsuccessful to kind of win over British and American opinion to alternatives to population transfer um, I'd also say as well if you want to start thinking about you know who are who are the displaced? Who are the refugees? What kind of agency do they have? We, you know, with reference to population transfer and the story of population transfer in mid-century Europe, I mean, it's worth pointing out that m most of the the high political discussion um, on population transfer during World War II, at least among Allied nations, uh, took place off the edge of the continent, in exile. Yeah. Uh, among displaced politicians in London, and they were, to all intents and purposes, well, refugees. Right? Um, I mean, Edward Benash himself, if you already mentioned there, Michal, you know, you know, before his long march back to, you know, legitimacy and power, he was the quintessential refugee, living in reduced circumstances, in a kind of, you know, unpresupposing little house in southwest London, powerless, largely ignored, yeah, uh, in the at least in the first stages of. Of, of the war, but you know, you know, he went on to be instrumental in selling the idea of population transfer to the great powers at the time and other European exiles, both as a measure for Czechoslovakia and for Europe as a whole. And I don't know if that's not an example of refugee agency, uh, you know, and then what is, I suppose, you know? Very interesting. One would also be tempted to try to seek for um, evidence of refugee agency uh, of those who are less prominent, uh, but perhaps I should add that um, I've recently tried to look at the studies about refugees into Czechoslovakia, is uh, written by historians mostly, um, and fascinated by is that you can divide almost all of them into two types of narrative, uh, which I started to call scripts. Um, one is the script of political refugees. Um, this is a smaller, mostly elite group. Um, it's a group which produces its own image in many ways. Um, it's focused on its political or national project. And these people are captured as having agency. Mm -hmm. And then there are the other refugees who are people uh, who are victims of population movements, be it um, Sudeten German refugees after the Munich Agreement, or for instance, the refugees from the Ukraine and Belarusia who flood uh, Slovakia after um, uh, in 1944 and beyond. And of course, we could add, and first world war refugees in the Habsburg monarchy as well. And these are typically these, and the kind of narrative that is developed around this is based much more uh, on statistics. On categorization, uh, development of state knowledge to manage a population, and their agency is is lost. And I was I was having um, it, it was striking to me that almost everything fell relatively clearly in one of these two categories. Yeah. Um, and of course, I thought uh, perhaps it also influences how we think about refugees today. And that would be interesting also to hear from the perspective of your research. It was more focused on the mass transfers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, think that's, I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, point there, Michal, and a really helpful distinction uh, to draw there is that you know these 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 elite select few displaced you know 
they are refugees, but essentially they're dealt with partly because, as you say, they have a voice, yeah? And that voice is often expressed through their access, however limited, to, you know, decision makers, yeah? Uh, but also, you know, the fact that they might have um, a journal, a newspaper, a way of kind of expressing, yeah, their individual or even collective uh, thoughts and opinions. In a sense, they, they no longer become refugees, they become emigres, <laughs> they become exiles, yeah, and that brings with it some form of kind of elevated status, yeah, um, and in which they are deserved to be heard, yeah, because of that. Whereas this kind of refugee label, to some extent, as you say, as expressed in a statistic, yeah, becomes undifferentiated, yeah, and de-individualized. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, re that's a, that's a useful way of thinking mm -hmm. about the way in which certain stories, yeah, and certain narratives get captured and recorded and others actually get lost. And our responsibility of historians then uh, to go out, you know, and, you know, not just to go to, you know, Edvard Benesch's memoirs, which we can all easily get, yeah, because it's been there very easily packaged for us, uh, for posterity, uh, but also to kind of look and to kind of discover all kind of alternative ways of finding those, 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 those refugee, those refugee voices, yeah. And do you have suggestions for them, uh, uh, Michal? How, how, how do we do that, um, I suppose? How do we uncover those voices? That is not an easy task. Um, um, and, but uh, just to give an example, um, there is there's a very interesting approach how you reconstruct refugee agency based on um, uh, on letters, uh, applications that they write to say refugee organizations, NGOs, or to the state, kind of writing upwards. Um, there's been a very inspiring uh, article about this by Peter Gattrell and, uh, and, and other authors recently, and other studies in this in this direction. It is a very difficult type of source, but it gives you access to individuals who uh, who uh, didn't leave memoirs, um, who uh, who are of no interest as individuals with agency, uh, or who were of no interest to. Um, to the state or to the NGOs um, at the time. And of course, this is methodologically very difficult because um, this is written material such as appeals against expulsion, uh, appeals that relate to citizenship, um, appeals for assistance. Um, it, is, it is, of course, a material that uh, in which the refugees are always in conversation with the state and they, they draw a certain picture of themselves. And it's a, dis uh, a discourse of loyalty, is always mm -hmm. But on the other hand, reading them critically and comparing them, reading them next to each other, um, I think can be really enriching. So just just as one mm. possibility of um, where to uh, where to search uh, search for. Other than this, of course, it's very complicated. Um, I once was trying to uh, uh, search the large archives um, of uh, uh, oral history interviews for the Holocaust. For Jewish refugees in the First World War, because a lot of these people who were interviewed in the 1990s had this experience, but there are very few such uh, interviews, and and the sections are very short. Uh, uh, there's not much you can you can find there. But let us let's let's move a, a little bit forward. Um, I was I was just thinking whether you, um, if we can um, think of influence of these histories 
on how refugees are discussed today in Eastern Europe. Of course, Eastern Europe is um, not always a friendly um, um, region for refugees today. Um, it, the anti-refugee campaigns might have been stronger. Um, the populist <laughs> politics uh, around migration uh, might be worse than in other parts of uh, Europe. Um, so uh, I was just wondering if um, the history of population transfers influences thinking um, about refugees. So for instance, if I should give an example, um, whether um, population transfer as uh, um, as a movement of people which is actually organized uh, cannot fit into uh, these ideas of great replacement, the conspiracy theories around migration. Okay, uh, another another really big <laughs> big question. Um, yes, probably it does. Um, so uh, the reaction to the uh, so-called migrant crisis and, and, and its aftermath uh, is probably says as much about uh, where, where where European states and societies see themselves in the future now and in the future than it does about the past. No, um, and I think what's striking about the reaction at a state and societal level, and they're not always in tandem um, to the migrant crisis is that it's been able to be presented as, or, or can be presented as a Western and Eastern European response, you know, in the sense of the very negative tropes around Eastern Europe, this idea that it's somehow, you know, backward, atavistic, illiberal, et cetera. Now, what's, of course, interesting uh, in the current climate uh, in East Central Europe is that, to some extent, that's been embraced as a badge of honor <laughs> yeah, uh, by some of the populist regimes, you know, um, to differentiate themselves against the kind of liberal, yeah, uh, the liberal West. Um, and in a sense, the response, again, at a state level, at least to the uh, recent so-called migrant crisis um, is very much a kind of litmus test, yeah, um, of how, well, of what part of Europe, you know, um, states belong to. Um, and you could argue from the UK context, it no longer belongs to Europe at all in that respect. So I think that's interesting as well, that kind of east-west divide. Um, and of course, that's much starker, I suppose, because of at least the initial response of Merkel's Germany, you know, with the open door policy and the so-called um, welcome culture uh, that we saw briefly, that has been rolled back on uh, in 2015-16, which, um, and, and, and more broadly, Germany's um, final ascent uh, to the kind of role of, you know, global, um, flag blarer for, for liberal democracy. Um, and that's created kind of stuck, I suppose, stark contrast, I think, yeah, um, um, between the, the, the response of, of, of states like Poland, um, Czech Republic, or Czechia, sorry, now, as we should call it, um, and, and Hungary. Um, so th th there's that contrast there. Um, 
the extent to which population transfers as opposed to, I mean, displacement, displacement more broadly and the experience of, of, of encountering refugees, yeah? Uh, and, and having a history of that, whether that in any way um, influenced the response, yeah? At a state and societal level uh, post 2015. You know, I think there's some claims, you know, you can see that German, Germany's relatively generous response yeah, is somehow explained by its long history yeah, of taking in refugees and migrants, you know, expellees in the 40s, refugees from GDR in the 50s, guest workers in the 60s, uh, former Yuga Bosnians and late resettlers in the 1990s. Uh, I don't know, I think that's superficially convincing. <laughs> yeah, uh, because, you know, and it's difficult to substantiate, um, especially as the welcome that those groups received at the time uh, was far from warm, yeah. Um, uh, uh, even towards so-called co-ethnic, you know, brethren, yeah, uh, you know, expellees in the in, in the forties or or, or 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 refugees from GDR in the nineteen fifties. So it's not as if it's a kind of unalloyed success, you know, you know uh, success story. Um, I don't know. I don't know how those connections can be made. Uh, I think they tend to be rather, as I say, kind of superficial. Um, and I don't know what evidence there is there, there is of of them. I don't know. And um, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Michal? Um. I'm not. I'm not certain, uh, but um, because on the on the one hand, in um, in research, but also in like popular awareness, it seems in East, in post-communist Europe, it seems like uh, uh, the the current history of refugees started in 1989, okay. and I think it would be important for us to re-establish these connections and the longer patterns of how we think um, about refugees, uh, and I think it's. Um, uh, more research is needed. And for me as a historian, looking at current debate, I see clear structural similarities. Um, every large refugee group looks the, like the first one um, and as a big threat. Um, and and there, there are obvious similarities, especially less to, to possible solutions um, uh, or approaches to refugees. Uh, uh, but but rather uh, similarities in terms of reactions, um, in terms of anti-refugee um, discourses. And I think it all shows um, that, that the topic that we discussed today um, is of much concern, I think, to current scholarly, but also popular debate. And we could talk for hours about it, but we don't have um, that much time. Um, so I was wondering, uh, before we finish, um, if... Um, you could um, guide us um, to other resources. What should we look at? What should we read about uh, uh, about this fascinating topic? Okay. Well, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to recommend you a book or an article. That would be too obvious, uh, and you probably already read too many of them already. Um, so here's a suggestion. Um, I can't read out a URL, but we can post it up afterwards. I think. Um, so type in Documentation Center Berlin in the search engine, uh, and this will bring up the, um, the website of the new Documentation Center for Flight Expulsion and Reconciliation, which is just opened in Berlin. It was opened by Merkel, I think, on the 21st of June, uh, just south of Potsdamer Platz. Um, and uh, the Documentation Center, and I quote from it, aims to provide information about the causes, dimensions, and consequences of displacement, expulsion, and forced migration in 20th century Europe and beyond. The main focus is on the displacement and expulsion of Germans at the end of the Second World War, which was initiated by Germany 
It offers exhibitions, a library, testimony, archive tours and workshops, events, a shop and a restaurant. So this 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 documentation sent in, you'll find out very quickly about it when you read it, is the result of what was now almost uh, a two decade long tussle about how to commemorate and represent the expulsion of Germans in post-unification Germany. And it can trace its origins way back actually to a proposal by the main German expellee organization in the early, 19, 2000, in the early 2000s for a center against expulsions. And this caused a controversy not only within Germany, but beyond in Poland. Um, Anyway, this is a, um, a federally funded, uh, a federally mandated institution. Um, I suppose what's interesting about it for, from, a, from a historian's perspective, um, and this is something that you know, uh, our listeners can, can, can judge when they look at it. Um, historians on this topic uh, you know, of, of forced displacement have often pointed out, and I point you to Pertia Honan's article on this in contemporary European history a couple of years back, um, on the paradox about how, although forced displacement was a transnational phenomenon it's nevertheless largely been understood and written about as a national story yeah um and to some extent the documentation center is an effort to to overcome this yeah or to resolve this and tell it as a european to tell the expulsion of the germans as a european and, a, and, and even global story and, and of shared individual experiences and that goes back to your question about how to write it from below and there's an attempt to do that in, in some of the um some of the um some of the some of the exhibits that they have there um now whether this is successful uh, it's probably too early to say and, and and you can be the best judge of that by going to have a look at it you know, either virtually or in person when you can travel but i do think it's interesting uh you know the opening of this museum in in, in june 2021 um it's interesting demonstrating the extent to which I suppose the framing and, and, and discussion of what we've been talking about today um, has moved on or not. Um, and if only in a German context, though it has been uh, a, a, an international collaboration uh, uh, to this point in time in, 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 the, in the second decade of the, the 21st century. Thank you for pointing this out. And I'm looking forward to uh, see this controversial project, its result um, in person. Uh, I think it, it is probably my role to uh, um, to recommend um, for for reading um, your wonderful book, uh, Making Minorities um, History. Um, and with that, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Michal. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.